week. This series will wrap up with uh, Pastor Wallace, and he gave me a little snippet this morning of what it will be, and there's a new, uh, Boston, the Boston, uh, it's not the creed, I'm blanking on the word, resolution. He's going to, he feels that it summarizes a lot of Dr. Lloyd's talks and some of the things that he started with, so we look forward to the conclusion of that, and then we'll get into the Christmas season, and, and then in January we come back with Deb Runlet, who is going to give us a look into the life of Daniel. Um, she's going to take three weeks, and I look forward to, to, to hearing her message. Deb has not been available to us for a number of years, and I know we've always enjoyed her, and uh, we'll look forward to that. Let's open in prayer. Father God, it's another week of Advent. You spoke to me again this week. I was asked if I was ready for Christmas, and I gave somewhat my earthly response. There's been so much going on, I just don't know if I'm quite ready. Just don't quite feel it. And then you spoke throughout the week. You reminded me of when Jesus went to the house of the Pharisee and the woman who was a sinner came and anointed him with ointment or perfume from an alabaster, which itself was a piece of clay that was probably worth more than she could afford and perfume that would have brought a year's wages. And she washed her sins with her tears and his feet with her hair. When the people in the, in the home itself never even gave him water for his feet or oil for his hair, how exuberant she was as she prepared him and prepared herself. And I failed to show that same spirit of preparation. Into the church of Lucidia, they were admonished for being neither hot nor cold, but being lukewarm, like the water of their town. And it was not acceptable to be lukewarm, to just be spit out. So Lord, my prayer this morning is that as we enter yet another week of Advent, let us not just go through the motions and be lukewarm or not give our best, but to truly prepare ourselves with enthusiasm for the gift of your son, Jesus. And in that same spirit, might you send your Holy Spirit today and prepare us for these words, that they be the most exciting thing we hear today, as we bring honor and praise to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Good morning, it's on. Yay, there we go. I completely forgot to put the mic on. We'll call that a pregnant pause. <laughs> the room was just so excited, I had to wait a moment. But the, uh, 
One thing I teach, uh, and, and most of my work is in argumentation and rhetoric, which I've talked about in other times. I've talked about Jesus' rhetoric and rhetoric of the New Testament. And a lot of times rhetoric gets a bad name because people say, well, there's truth and there's rhetoric or there's reality and there's rhetoric. And I'm like, but you can't talk about anything without rhetoric. You make choices about how you say what you say. And that's what rhetoric is. But one thing that really bothers me and I don't know about your family, but my family, we get into arguments about politics, and I'm talking about politics today, one of the things you're not supposed to talk about. And yeah, even though we, we really just purposely avoid it, um, because it does sometimes get people at odds, um, one of my least favorite arguments is this, and it doesn't matter which side it is. It'll be like, you say something about Republicans, and they go, well, what about the Democrats? Or you say something about the Democrats, like, what about the Republicans? And I'm just here to tell you, I would just want to spread the word, that's not an argument. <laughs> you would recognize that as such if you thought about an analogy. Let's say you tell your children not to drink beer. And they say, you drink beer? You're like, so? <laughs> that's not an argument. <laughs> are you with me? So I'm really tired of the polarization. I'm sure you are too. Um, but I am tired of people who are making it worse. And to me, it is, um, and this is my argument, back to those arguments is, I am seeking justice and truth. And I'll look for it in any party, in any person. Yes? That's my concern. And I don't care if the Republican, Democrat, Independent, I'm looking for what? Justice and truth. And in the person, integrity. Yes? That's important to me. <coughs> because they can mouth justice and truth. Yes, we all can. That's when it is just rhetoric. It, there has to be some reality behind it. So, I wanted to talk a little bit about today uh, the political divide. My original plan was to talk about the political divide, but I decided I'm going to talk about what brings us together, which to me makes more sense. There's enough talk about the divide. All right, so again, like in every other week, I want to look at some precedents. The Hebrew Bible and politics, New Testament and politics, the origins, origins of the idea of separation of church and state, which will be rather surprising. They were the reformers. It was actually Martin Luther. Aha. And why would he want to do that? Because he was trying to break with the Catholic Church. But he didn't necessarily want to break with the state, right? With the, with the princes. Because they would kill him. The Catholic Church could kill him, but uh, it's a little, it had a little further reach. He had some protection from a prince named Frederick. But you can't alienate Frederick. So if you come up with the idea that there are two kingdoms, so it originates with the ideas of the Protestants to protect the church. A lot of people look at it the other way around. The state, it's all about the state. No, it's all about the church. He recognized that you can't have dissent in the church if the state owns the church. All right, it, it was refined, of course, by the Enlightenment thinkers coming up to our nation. 
the founders of the U.S. And then, as usual, I look at Jesus after I look at all of that, because I'd like to get a little perspective on what Jesus says about these kinds of things. Then I always like to do a reality check, what's really happening, <laughs> and then what can we do? All right, so let's go back to the politics of the Hebrew people in the Hebrew Bible. All right, originally, as you know, um, the Hebrew people were a tribal confederacy. They uh, considered themselves 12 different tribes, and there, were, there was no monarchy, there was no ruler. This is the period of the judges. And then the monarchy, um, we, they finally get a monarchy under Saul, and I'll talk a little bit about that, but it only lasts for three kings. It lasts for Saul and David and Solomon, and then it explodes, and we end up with the northern and southern kingdoms, Judah and the south. By the way, uh, the word Jew comes from Judah. The two kingdoms period was from 920 to 597. Israel was the first to fall, the northern kingdom was the first to fall in 722, and it was gone. It was decimated. The people that lived there, the Samaritans began to, sort of a blended people uh, began to live there. But for the most part, that kingdom was just gone. They still talk about the lost tribes of Israel. Um, the monarchy became divided after, the, after King Solomon. And then Judah was later destroyed by the Babylonians in 597. Then it was restored by the Persians, Cyrus the Great of Persia restored it. Then it was subdued by the Greeks in 322 and later destroyed by the Romans in 70. So just a little context. In the period of tribal confederacy, the country was unusual in that they got together. Most countries got together because of shared interest, right? Shared water, shared um, political interests. This is the first nation we know of that got together for religious purposes the common worship of Yahweh, the God of Israel. So the political unity grew out of the religious, not the other way around. So certainly no separation of church and state since it was basically church, if you put it in that metaphor. Then after the period of the judges, Israel transformed into a uh, monarchy, but it was still in the sense that it was organized according to its religion. So they had a church-state problem, so to speak. Right, And that if we organize under a king, we're officially making ourselves a little more what we would call secular. We're having, putting a ruler there. This meant that the new state can inherit the religious legitimation of the old tribal community. The national identity of the people still had the same religious foundation. So what did they come up with? A second covenant. Actually, it would be the third. The Noah covenant was first, right? And then Moses' covenant of Sinai. The third covenant. The Davidic, they established Israel as a, sac a sacral kingship. The ruler in Jerusalem was the son of Yahweh entrusted to a divine commission. You've heard the psalm that says, today you are my son, yeah, I've begotten thee, that was written originally to David in his ascension to the throne. It's the Davidic covenant between Yahweh and his chosen king. And as you know, that becomes important in the New Testament. When they pulled the two together, uh, basically uh, David and then Solomon um, 
First David brings the ark to Jerusalem, his capital, symbolizing the unity of the faith and the politics of the kingdom. And then eventually the Ark of the Covenant rests in the Holy Holies in um, Solomon's temple. (laughs) But the irony there is then the kingdom split right after that. All right. There were some who resisted the monarchy, particularly the prophet Samuel, who actually crowned the first king Saul, but he did so reluctantly. And according to the scriptures, it says that Yahweh says to Samuel, they have not rejected you, it is I whom they have rejected from being king over them. So the ideal situation in Israel was to be ruled by the king, as Yahweh as king, right? So it's a monarchy of a different sort. But that didn't prevail because the people prevailed upon Saul that they needed a king. They needed someone to really take care of the business of running things day to day. It's great in theory to have an invisible ruler, but it didn't really pull the country together. All right, so we move into the monarchical period, monarchical period. And um, at this point, I wasn't really all that aware of this. They had professional prophets in the courts, right? Nathan would have been one of those for David. Um, they were court prophets, and but their job was pretty much like the court prophets of every country. You remember meeting court prophets when they were uh, in Egypt, right? The Egyptians had their own court prophets in their own religion. To pronounce Their job was to pronounce blessings in the state cult and secure its success and prosperity. In other words, to tell them, you know, pretty much function as yes people. So they were advisors to the king, but their job was pretty much just to always bless. And it's interesting, we still have that tradition, don't we? God bless America, is how most presidents end their speeches. It's that tradition of playing that role of the court prophet. Men like Micah and Jeremiah said by the time of their day, they say, all is well, all is well, but nothing is well. I'm like, hmm, there are some core prophets that do that now. All right, so I want to think about that. Here's another part. The the cultic prophets, they call them cultic prophets because they're not official court prophets. They emerge from out in the wilderness or some uh, town other than Jerusalem usually. Um, And the article that I'm quoting from, so the great prophets do not act as representatives of certain political groups, they do not foment rebellions, they do not conspire against kings, they do not want to subvert the social order. Well then, what do they do? They serve as the conscience of the state. I like this idea. There were some prophets that came in and go, wait, we're out of line. Right? They usually weren't popular. (laughs) Like Jeremiah, sometimes they got thrown into a well. So, They were trying to be the conscience of the people. And I think that has implications for the separation of church and state, doesn't it? They're not a part of the state, are they? They're not the court prophets. All right, they remind the kings of the justice which they are in charge of. Okay. Something else about these prophets, though, uh, that's different from the separation of church and state is they want no separation of church and state, so to speak. I'm speaking anachronistically. But 
They said Israel should radically abstain from all military alliances and all dependence on human powers and rely solely on the help of Yahweh. So in that sense, this is called the prophetic postulate that they all sit, they are all trying to say, even though we have a king, even though we are under the rule of kings, the kings need to get us back in line with Yahweh. So, sort of a combo platter, a mix of religion and state. So, politics in the Hebrew Bible. The Hebrew Bible promotes the idea of a state dedicated to the service of Yahweh. There are some today who say this is a Christian nation and makes similar arguments. I have problems with that, but we'll move on. Views differed on the switch from a tribal confederacy to a monarchy, but later was institutionalized in the Davidic covenant. And then that's reaffirmed in the New Testament. But in either form, it's not a good model for a model pluralistic nation, is it? The same problem applies to the New Testament given the nature of Jesus' rule as the monarch of the church. Okay, so basically, we'll see what a bad idea this is in the Middle Ages. This idea that this church and state are one unit. Okay, so implications though, I think there are a couple of important implications. That there were court prophets who pronounced blessings on the state cult and secure success and prosperity. They basically are institutionalized to pray for and intercede for the government. And the cultic prophets serve as the conscience of the state. It's interesting that this is actually there's a quote from Martin Luther King saying exactly that. The church must be reminded that it's not the master or servant of the state, but rather it is the conscience of the state. It must be the God and critic of the state, never its tool. So you can see the reasons for the separation of church and state is to enable the church to actually have more power. Yeah. All right, so let's move to the New Testament. Uh, as you know, if you've been here for other weeks, the New Testament writers went with the status quo. And I only have two quotes up here, but you can find more. There's no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. So basically, saying the Romans have control over us because God let them, or he's in charge, so we shouldn't rebel against the Romans. And first of all, then, I urge that supplications, prayers, and intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings, and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. So the first one raises the question, well, what do we do if we think they're unjust? What do we do? Do we just say, well, God's in charge, so therefore it's okay? I would have trouble saying that about Syria, or I would have trouble saying that about Russia right now, wouldn't you? Or China well, all governments are instituted by God, so I guess, you know, too bad for anybody that's oppressed. I don't think anybody would want to say that. So it raises those kinds of questions, but the New Testament doesn't give you a lot to argue in the other way. In light of the second, are the Christians praying mostly just to be left alone? (laughs) The second one just says, we just want to pray that they don't mess with us. So you can kind of see that they were living in a culture where they were possibly going to be persecuted, always on the edge of in trouble, and they thought, we just want to keep over on the edges. All right, so flash forward to the Reformation. <laughs> like I said, Martin Luther comes up with the idea. 
of the doctrine of two kingdoms. And this is not a new idea. It's kind of based in um, the city of God from Augustine. He talks about that there's the perfect spiritual world and then there's the reflection in the lake. And we confuse one for the other. <laughs> and then radical reformers, they, like the Anabaptists, took it and went further. So they said separation of church and state should be so strong that baptized believers should not vote, serve in public office, or participate in any other way in the kingdom of the world. And um, groups like the Mennonites come from this tradition and a little bit, even though it says Baptist, it is sort of the Baptist tradition, but it's not the same thing. All right, so this guy up here, um, Michael Sattler, Anabaptist came to teach that religion should never be compelled by state power approaching the issue of church-state's relations primarily from the position of doing what? Do you see it? Protecting the church. You gotta think, these, these groups are, are friends groups. They've pulled away from the largest powers in the world at that time, in their world. Yes, the Catholic Church. They needed protection. So this two kingdom idea leads to that. It also leads to tolerance because they, they want it to be the case that Lutherans, Calvinists, Anabaptists are not killed, right? So it's embedded in it is the idea that there's protection for all different kinds of Christians. At this point, they haven't graduated to the idea of all different kinds of religions, but at least we move to the point, different views of Christianity. So, Sattler's perspective became the normative position for most Anabaptists in the coming centuries. We talked about that uh, in one of the other sessions about how uh, the Quakers, Mennonites, don't serve in the armed services. All right, so Luther said in the Two Kingdoms Doctrine, God is the ruler of the whole world, and he rules it in two ways. And it's held by Lutherans and many Calvinists. So coming down into the Presbyterian Church as well. According to the doctrine, God rules the worldly or left-hand kingdom through secular, but also the churchly government, right? The church has a governing hierarchy, doesn't it? So God rules through the left, and he put both of them together, the kind of church hierarchy and the state, over here, and then God rules the church, the real church, the spiritual church, through what? Let's see, through, the, through grace. So, rule of law in this realm, rule of grace in this realm. Therefore, we need a separation. Arthur, Martin Luther used the phrase two governments rather than two kingdoms he and Philip Melanchthon's doctrine, which was later labeled two kingdoms, so this is actually, he, uh, Luther didn't use that phrase, but that's the one that caught on. Melanchthon's doctrine was labeled as two kingdoms. The church should not exercise worldly government, and princes should not rule the church or have anything to do with the salvation of souls. So there are the origins of the idea of separation of church and state. All right. This is when church and state become one. Good old Henry the what? Good old Henry the Eighth. Nice. <laughs> oh, I'm Henry the Eighth. Oh, I am. Great song, but it has nothing to do with that Henry. But that's what makes the song funny. The woman he's marrying was married seven times before. 
all named Henry. Great joke. All right, Henry VIII, not to be confused with this song, split with the Catholic Church, not really for reformist ideals, but basically for money and power and the ability to get divorced. So he split with the Catholic Church and he became the governor of the Church of England. Well, if you know anything about English history, you know this was a horrible idea because now the king was the ruler of both church and state. Before, at least you had a pope over here and a prince over here, but the prince had to share allegiance to the pope. So they were unified in that way, but now this is complete, total unity. And what began immediately? Extensive persecution of Catholics. <coughs> he burned, well, he just killed nuns and priests, burned their um, monasteries. I know a lot of people, they go to England and they see these knock down churches and things and they think it's all romantic and pretty and this is Henry just burned down their churches. Shakespeare, by the way, was Catholic. He's a little nervous. His uncle was arrested a few times. <coughs> so it's right in this period and when, even when Cromwell came into power, things got even worse. They established penal laws against Catholics who did not adhere to the Church of England. It was a bad time to be a Catholic in England. So is it a really bad idea when church and state are one thing? Because then you have to pick which church. You have to pick which belief. And Christianity is already split into all these different beliefs. Unfortunately, the colonists came over here and continued the practice. They came for religious liberty, but then wouldn't let each other have it. <laughs> like, man, how many missed opportunities? I wish I had a quarter for every time I talked about missed opportunity. This is one of them. But they did not seek religious freedom. The early North American colonies were generally as tolerant, intolerant of religious dissent. Puritan Massachusetts did not allow standard Church of England worship. Some of these people voluntarily sailed to the American colonies specifically for this purpose. The Constitution of the United States, and this is why the Constitution takes the side of the separation of church and state. We can't have a state church. We don't even have colonies that agree. So how are we going to be a unified people? Dump the idea. Let's get as far from it as possible. And I, just in case you've heard arguments about the U.S. being a Christian country, I've put a website up there that you might want to read. Um, because I believe that the founding fathers were coming more from Enlightenment ideals and Luther's idea of the two kingdoms than they were actually trying to create a Christian country. Because of the dangers of that, which Christianity do you pick? They wouldn't be able to pick among themselves. They were all different backgrounds. All right, so Protestants and politics. Protestants basically invented the idea of separation in church and state, but unfortunately, I don't think they understood it. This makes sense because until that time, all Christian countries were Catholic and the state and church functioned together as one. In order to break with the Catholic church, but not break with ruling monarchs, Protestants responded with a two-kingdom interpretation. Pretty smart move. And of course, it was based kind of, it was based in scripture, right? Because Jesus says, my kingdom's not of this world. It's not like they got it from nowhere. Jesus was setting up the kingdom of God. They just sort of elaborated on that. But in medieval Europe, they couldn't comprehend secular states. So whole countries and principalities allowed themselves with either Catholics or the Protestants and the intolerance for one or for the other. And 
of course, that just sparked intolerance oh, towards Jews and Muslims as well. I don't think you can see that, but it, it is on the website. I think it's already been posted. Um, let me, there's a little dot thing here. All right, so as you can see up here, uh, this would be the Puritans, Presbyterians up here in, in Scotland. Uh, this is mostly Lutheran here. This is Dutch Reformed. I can't read some of these either. Huguenots are down here. Uh, this, the German Swiss Calvinists down in here. So already the map of Europe has been broken up. And the idea of separation of church and state at least is protecting these emerging perspectives and denominations. So the Enlightenment comes in, and I think they're directly in line with that. I, I'm not sh the Enlightenment, I think, knows all of this, and they're spinning this, these ideas out. So John Locke adds to the idea with the idea of the social contract. He argues that the government lacks authority in the realm of individual conscience. The government can't decide what faith I am. This is what was happening in medieval Europe. And Frederick of Saxony said, we're all going to be Protestants. Everyone were Protestants. Right? So whatever the king or queen or prince said, you were that. You didn't have any choice in the matter. So he says, the church, the state can't decide for me what, what faith or what denomination. It's a matter of conscience. He said there's a natural right in the liberty of conscience, the, the ability of the human being to choose. So this is the basis of tolerance because you have the right to choose and I have the right to choose, but I can't choose for you and you can't choose for me. Yes, so I have to tolerate other views. It leads to the idea of individual conscience and the social contract. The fact that we have agreed, his idea was that government is not here because God put it here, it's here because we agreed. And if we agree, whatever we agree on, that's it. This is the basis of the United States government, isn't it? We, the what? People. people. Agree, basically. That word is hidden in there. <laughs> we, the people, agree. We, the perfect, and as Lincoln says, they are just to establish a more perfect union. Yes? All right, Pierre Bale uh, was pushing also for separation of church and state, uh, developing more ideas. Montesquieu was um, um, pushing for the idea of religious tolerance. Uh, Voltaire said, well, if you have to make a choice, then the church is subordinated to the state. There's a debate right there. And then Diderot said the distance between the throne and the altar can never be too great. On the basis of all those kinds of things, we get James Madison. And it says, the, one of the most important modern proponents of the separation of church and state, Luther's doctrine of the two kingdoms marked the beginning of the modern conception of separation of church and state. So he directly referred to Luther's idea as a great idea. And we're basing our country on that. Jefferson writes the famous phrase, the wall of separation. You heard that? Between church and state? It's not actually in the document itself. <coughs> it's from a letter he wrote in 1802 to the Danbury Baptist Association. And basically he's telling them that no one's going to persecute you in our country. This is America. 
and, and we're based, we have the separation of church and state specifically for the purpose that you cannot be persecuted. Believing with you that religion is a matter which lies solely between man and his God, that he owes account to none other for his faith or his worship, that the legitimate powers of government reach actions only, not opinions, I contemplate with sovereign reverence that the act of the whole American people, which declared that their legislature should make no law respecting establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof, thus building a wall of separation between the church and the state. They, they knew. They'd seen what happened in medieval Europe. Yeah? They'd even seen the French Revolution by this time. That was no picnic either, was it? <coughs> and they realized that this whole idea of church and state, there needs to be a separation. This is what it actually says in the Bill of Rights. Congress shall make no law respecting the establishment of religion, prohibiting free exercise thereof. Notice that's the first one. Or abridging the freedom of speech, or the press, or the right of the people peaceably to assemble, to petition the government for redress of grievances. All the things that are not allowed when church and state are together. Right? Jefferson was describing the to the Baptists that the United States Bill of Rights prevents the establishment of a national church. And in doing so, they did not have to fear government interference in their right to expressions of religious conscience. All right, also um, the writings of some of our founding Influential founding fathers uh, agree, or founders, I'd rather call them. Christianity neither is nor ever was a part of common law in every country and every age. The priest has been hostile to freedom, I think it says. John Adams, the government of the United States is not in any sense founded on the Christian religion. Thomas Paine, all national institutions, churches, whether Jewish, Christian, or Turkish, appear to be none other than human inventions set up to terrify and enslave mankind and monopolize power and profit. Pain was always <laughs> that kind of thing. He was a little over the top even in his own day, but there you are. And then uh, James Madison, the more controlled religion and government will both exist in greater purity the less they are mixed together. I think so. All right, reasons for separation of church and state. Let's review the two kingdoms idea. One is under the rule of law. The other is under the rule of God, right? The rule of the, of the spirit. Sean Locke said, it's because we have a social contract. We agree that we have the natural right to the liberty of conscience. Bale said faith is independent of reason. That we have two different realms that we live in, states and more in the realm of reason and law. Faith is a matter of faith, right? Conscience, belief. Montesquieu said that separation is for religious tolerance. We can't pick one church and say that's the one. There's so many different ways to view things. We need to have tolerance. Voltaire said the church needs to be subordinate to the uh, needs of the state. I think people sometimes will agree with that as well in the sense that you know, usually in churches there's an American flag on the, up in front of the church. The distance between the throne and the altar can never be too great, Diderot said. And Jefferson said, religion is a matter which lies solely between man and his God. He owes no account to none other for his faith or his worship. That legitimate powers of government reach actions only, not opinions. I kind of like that one too, right? Because we do a lot of litmus test things about people's opinions. And I'm not sure that's totally appropriate, but we'll get to that. 
But here, to sum up, the idea of separation of church and state was a Christian idea. It was to protect Christians from state influence and promote tolerance of different views. Now, some of these people were intolerant, but they didn't want to be shut down because they differed from the other, <laughs> right? So they might have thought they were right and everybody else was wrong, but they still protected tolerance because that's what protected them. All right, so what did Jesus say? Again, it's tricky. Like every other week, what I've talked about different issues, Jesus doesn't usually ad- directly address some of these things. So what are we going to do? Let's look at some things that have implications. Okay, so he's not a political leader, and he actively resisted being so. He, d- he directly resisted getting into a political squabble when his enemies tried to trap him in the question of paying taxes. I talked about this one another week. If he said no, he would be considered an insurgent by the Romans. If yes, then a traitor to the Jews who wished to foment rebellion. Do we pay taxes? Either way, he's trapped. Yes, you're a traitor. No, you're an insurgent. (laughs) They could get him arrested for either. So he points to the denarius. It's interesting because I forget if it's Mark or Luke. Somebody says denarius specifically because they paid drachma the Hebrew coinage in the temples, denarius they paid for taxes. That's why there were money changers in the temple. They would bring in their denarii and then they would change it over for drachma. They didn't want that unclean Greek money or Roman money floating around in the temple. All right, so he tells them to get a a denarius, not a drachma. And he says, whose image is on the coin? Nice move. So give it back. <laughs> Basically is what he says. So give it back. Plus there's a pun on image of God, right? What I've talked about in the other week. You're the image of God, so give that to God and just give the money to Caesar. That's his. So in a way, he was talking about, guess what? Separation of church and state. He kind of said there's state stuff and there's God stuff. Know the difference. And he didn't answer the question, right? (laughs) He didn't say yes or no. He he was trapped into a yes or no question and didn't answer either yes or no, did he? Nice rhetoric. All right, and it says, and they marveled at him. Now, I used to read that as they marveled at how brilliant he was, but I think they marveled at him like how exasperating this guy was. (laughs) You try to trap him. It's like my father used to tell me, he says, you're impossible to punish. He says, I send you to your room and you read. (laughs) You play guitar. (laughs) One time he took all my books and all my guitars out of the room and then he came to check on me and I was just sitting there happily looking out the window and he's like, darn it. (laughs) And there's something of that happening here. They're trying to trap this guy into a yes or no question. Nope, not happening. That's good rhetoric. And we learned something about separation of church and state. He also says, my kingdom is no part of this world. Jesus, knowing that they're about to come and seize him and make him king, withdrew again to the mountain all alone. He's like, I'm not doing that thing. I'm not going to be a political leader. And, And some of why he ends up getting killed is because he would not be a political leader. 
Jesus answered, Pilate, you have no authority over me unless it's been given to you from above. Now, later on, this is seen as kind of justifying those New Testament passages, right? But I don't really see it that way. I, I, you've probably already figured out, I look at every conversation that happens in the Bible kind of like contextually. Like, what is he saying to him? He's not making a big statement about powers to be, is he really? I think he's saying something like, this is God's plan. Right? It's not your plan. You're not in control here. And he's making an important statement about power, isn't he? You have no power over me. I think he could say that to any powerful person. Am I making any sense? I was teaching this to my students last week. Like People only have power over you if you let them. That's the principle he's laying down. Again, I think that says something about the power of church and state, doesn't it? State has no power over you, right? Who ultimately chooses to make your decisions? You, yes. Does this make sense? So I see this as a broader principle, not necessarily saying that the state is always a good thing or in the hands of God or, you know, blessed by God. I don't think the Romans... They were some nasty people. They, you know, they were one of the most tolerant cultures on the planet, so I'll give them that. But they also were very violent, warlike. It's hard to say that God was giving them a pass. But that's not what's happening here, is it? I think that Jesus is making a statement about power. Nobody has any power over you unless you give it to them. Okay, he also said, if we take political leaders broadly, the scribes and the Pharisees, as well as the Sadducees, were political leaders. They had political power. Famous quote, you know what's coming, don't you? What are those? Whitewashed tombs. (laughs) Jesus announces, hypocrites, the scribes and the Pharisees, for you are like unto whited sepulchres, which indeed appear beautiful outward, but are full of dead men's bones and of uncleanness. The hypocrite is the Greek word for stage actor. I like that. (laughs) You're a stage actor. Okay, lay that aside. To me, that's another thing that I would say when I get in arguments with my family. It's like, I'm looking to see if they're a stage actor or whether there's really a person there of integrity. Or, you know, you can say the right words. Has this been going on for thousands of years? People saying the right words and impressing other people. Hasn't this been happening for centuries? Speaking all the right things? Even we saw Hitler last week saying that he believed in positive Christianity. Yikes. He claimed to be a Christian. He told, remember he told a, a bishop, I'm doing the church a favor. Holy smokes. How will we know them, Jesus says? By their fruits, and fruit takes some time, doesn't it? Takes a season. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing but are inwardly ravenous wolves. You know them by their fruits. Do men gather grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? Even so, every good tree bears good fruit and bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit. Is it physically impossible? Yes. Nor can a bad tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Therefore, by their fruits, you will know them. 
It's kind of interesting because Jesus doesn't get kind of very violent in his language very often, so when he does, you kind of pay more attention. What happens to people with bad fruit? Throw it in the fire. Get rid of them. Now, later on, people interpret that as like, kill them. Not what he's saying, is he? I think he means that, you know, justice will occur, right? They'll be found out. But that doesn't mean we should be violent towards someone. All right, you do the math. We're doing reality check now. Recently, Christians have been using platforms of public statements as litmus tests for political candidates. I think I, this situation almost promotes jumping on the bad wagon and violating the principle of conscience. I noticed when this first started happening, some of the political leaders would say, well, that, that's between me and God, right? Are you a Christian? And be like, well, yeah, I'd go to, you know what I'm saying? They were like, this is, this is a matter of conscience. That's what our Constitution says. This is not something you brag about or use as a political lever. But I think it's become a political lever, and does that invite people to fake it? Of course it does. If I know that I can say some things that are going to please that particular segment, why not? Republicans taking on, and I'm not just attacking Republicans, I'm just saying this is a specific one. Republicans taking on the mantle of conservative Christianity and knowing that it would promote their cause slid a provision that allows churches to support political candidates into the tax reform bill. Did you know that was snuck in there? This, to me, is just a crime. This is, this is bad. This is bad for the church. That what's, what's happening here? Churches become super PACs. Wow, that makes me want to weep. So now, what are you going to, like, compete? Some candidate, I don't know if it actually is still in there or not, but don't let that pass you. <laughs> Let's keep an eye on that one. Some candidates promote themselves as Christian candidates. There's my question. What are their fruits? Right? What was I taught when I was going to church as a kid? Just because you're in a cookie jar doesn't mean you're a cookie. <laughs> right? <laughs> How do you know? Fruits. Let's look at the person's life. We've seen that happen a lot with accusations against people, and I think some of them rightfully say, oh boy, is it dead? Let's look at all the fruits, not just some of the fruits, and some of the people are like, no, the fruit's just bad, right? But I do think it makes a difference. What have been the fruits of this person's life? The line between church and state growing thinner, so does protection and tolerance. The founders and reformers recognized the danger of a state church. Christians seem to have forgotten the separations to their advantage. Should Christian denominations be battling for supremacy in the House and the Senate? I mean, this is not unusual. If you look at uh, other countries, there are parties called Christian Democrat, Christian this, Christian that. Um, and of course, most of them, completely have lost bearings as to what they started off doing, like the Sundance Channel. But, well, comment about the Sundance Channel. <coughs> but you know, like you remember when Bravo actually had art on it or whatever, and now it's just nothing. So parties lose, and that's another reason for separation of church and state, right? Because once the church and state get mixed together, they begin to lose focus. They become political. All right, so I'm just asking, are these websites helpful? Would Jesus vote Republican? 
Republican Party Christian. Republicans aren't Christians. And to be fair, should Christians vote Democrat? Now, I don't think this is helpful. But these websites are out there. And they're saying stuff, well, there's no way that you could possibly be a Democrat and a Christian. I'm like, what? Let's look at a reality check. Bam. Okay, evangelical Protestant up there, I didn't know it's very small, 56% Republican, okay? But yeah, Catholic, 44% Democrat. Black Protestant, oops, Republican, 10%. 80% Democrat. Mainline Protestant, 44 to 40. Orthodox Christian, 44% Democrat. So who's to say who's Christian or not by what party they're in? Can you say that? No. And we make these ridiculous kinds of assumptions. Interestingly enough, I, this chart is also fascinating uh, in terms of 69% of Buddhists are Democrats. Um, Muslims, not a surprise, 62% Democrat. <coughs> so it's a fascinating chart, but there's the reality check, right? Are Christians of all sorts in, and that's just Republican Democrat. Look at the middle thing, not leaning. Interestingly enough, if you look at Jehovah's Witnesses, 75% neither. <laughs> I'm like, I have respect for that. That means when you're voting for somebody, you're thinking about it. Like, does, what's the fruit? What's the integrity? Who is this person? Are they just saying the right words? Yeah, I don't think they do, but they lean. They apparently lean. <laughs> You're right. I don't think they vote. But they lean or don't lean. They don't lean. I know. Uh, yeah, you're right. I was uh, actually, I, that was one of those things like I was almost thinking. Like, wait, do they vote? Like, as I was talking, like, wait, I don't think they vote. So thank you for bringing that up. So which Christianity, which faith, which religion? Reality check three. I like this. I found a website that actually uh, asked that question, you know, should you be a Republican or a Democrat? And they actually had some sense by starting off with saying, well, uh, our church is... Uh, non-taxed and we do not take positions so I'm just going to try to think about this out loud independently and the person ended up concluding this both systems both Republican and Democratic systems have weaknesses and strengths historically speaking both systems have proven themselves capable of fulfilling basic biblical responsibility of government there you go I like I like that website because they gave it a chance. And I, and I don't think everything they said was completely fair to either side, but I thought they were attempting to be very fair to every side. And I don't think there's just two sides, for one thing. Now, this is actually from a Presbyterian minister, and I thought this was very interesting. Now, I think he's just trying to do something like what should be a litmus test for Christians. And you can agree or disagree, but I thought this was an interesting sight. He said, things to think about, things you can't do while following Jesus. Now, that's a little overly stated, but let's look at his list. Don't force your religious beliefs and practices on others. And I gave you the website if you want to look up. He gives explanations as for all of these. Advocate for war. 
It's almost like he's going through my talks. Favor the rich over the poor. He is going through my talks. Cut funding that hurts the least of these. <laughs> Let people go hungry. Withhold health care. 45,000 people die in the U.S. because of lack of health care. He goes on. Limit the rights of a select group of people. Because everybody knows if you limit the rights of someone else, sooner or later someone's going to limit yours. True? This is why they came up with tolerance. To protect people. People are looking at it now like tolerance, tolerance. Eh. And I'm like, what? What gave you, know, you the freedom to even say that remark? All right, so don't turn away immigrants. And I put that one there uh, because I thought his explanation was pretty interesting. Don't devalue education. Yay! <laughs> I hear this all the time. They talk about liberal institutions and, and making hippies out of college students. And I'm like, uh, no, that's not what we're doing. Believe me, I know universities are very conservative. And there are a few, you know, like Berkeley, a little, little looser out there. But most universities are very conservative. They make a lot of money. A lot of them are under the power of the state. Yes? So this stuff about, my mom will say stuff like this. And I'm like, Mom, do you realize where I work? <laughs> I'm a professor. She goes, well, it makes them more liberal. I said, no, it makes them think. I said, all I want my students to do is think. I don't tell them what to think. I just teach them, encourage them to think, right? That's all I do. And I think that's most any good professor does. I'm sure there are some that are like, oh, you gotta believe what I believe, but I, not many that I know of. One, the ones that I know of really just care deeply that the students really think about and engage with their lives. And he says support capital punishment. I'm sure some might disagree, but I think it's a very interesting list to think about. All right. Now, again, I'm out on an edge. It's just me. This is what I'm saying. But there's a reason why there are a bunch of things in one amendment. What does it say? Religion, speech, press, assemble, and redress of grievances. How many amendments are there? One. They're all together. Are we seeing that? That's because they all protect the other. We lose freedom of press, we're going to lose some other freedoms, aren't we? Oh, yeah. That's the way it works. What's the first thing repressive governments do? Attack the press. So I don't think things like this are helpful. Trump calls the journalists sick people. Fox is pro-Trump hoster discrediting Robert Mueller. Christian support for Roy Moore looks like hypocrisy. Trump shares inflammatory anti-Muslim videos. Now, I'm not doing that just to get on Trump's case. I'm just saying those, I think, are not helpful in attacking the free press in our country, attacking any particular group, endangers all of us. So, I want to review prophet's role is to serve as the conscience of the state. You remember Martin Luther King said the church should be the prophet.
So what am I trying to say? Find the good trees. Thank you. Questions, concerns, things you want to bring up? Yes. Brief thoughts from your presentation. Some years ago, I read a book 